Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. And I'm David Bernheisel. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. We just finished up ElixirConf, and that was a really great time. Three days of talks and presentations and being able to talk with people. There have been a ton of announcements. Covering the news will be the whole episode, so let's get into it. First up, Elixir 1.14 was officially released. This is the release that includes the debug slash zero and debug slash two. Jose Valim, in his opening keynote, talked about this, and he talked about the partition supervisor, and he explained more about how these features work and the use cases for using them. Jose also went into greater detail on the expression-based inspection and inspect improvements. He showed how special structs like MapSet can, when they're inspected, they can actually output the data showing how to actually create a new one, where it'd be the, the MapSet module calling dot new function and the arguments to create the MapSet being set up the way you'd expect. It only works with special structs. I think it's really interesting. It reminds me of when the inspect derived protocol was first introduced making it easy to customize how your individual structs were output, but being customizable being the key. So I wonder if maybe there'll be a, an option in the future to say, well, with this struct, if you wanted to recreate the state, uh, here's how you do that so it would know how to inspect it out. So I don't know. I don't know if that'll happen, but pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, like I'm, I'm curious because I know that like it, the, the goal of this is to make it like a little bit more copy-pastable, right? Like you can't copy-paste that angle bracket or comments, you know, or the, the hashtag and then angle bracket, whatever, and then all the stuff in there. But what if that data structure, and I'm thinking about NX here, what if that data structure is like super duper long? Like, are they not going to truncate it? Like, anyway, I'm, I'm curious because it won't be valid then either, right? <laughs> but this is still a welcome change. So even if it does have to truncate it for some reason, it's still closer to valid code than where it was. Uh, another improvement here in, in 1.14, I think related to this is that Ectostructs will like print fields in the order that it's declared. I found that to be kind of annoying sometimes. Yeah, you know, I've I've come to accept it, but like the ID field is like somewhere in the middle. So when stuff is printing out, it's kind of hard to find like the ID. So I can do a, a lookup somewhere else. So it's 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 interesting. So like there, there'll be a little bit of awkward period, right? Because if you're on an older Ecto version, like you won't get this benefit when you upgrade. But like once everything is upgraded. It'll be pretty cool. So you, it'll be printed in the in the uh, order that it's declared. So ID is usually first. Timestamps are usually last. I don't know. I, I do this. I put more important fields kind of on top <laughs> and, and like longer associations near the end. But yeah, that'll be pretty cool too. All right. Also up in the news, is it, it's related to one Elixir 1.14. Nerves 1.9 released. And uh, as far as I can tell, all this is doing is just fixing all those those warnings from Elixir 1.14. So that's pretty nice. So if you're on nerves and you want to get that Elixir 1.14 goodness, you know, just upgrade both and you'll be good. I think part of the big benefit there with the nerves update was that it was just validating that, yes, this is a clean working thing with Elixir 1.14, no breaking changes or any impact to nerves. So that's also cool. Next up, Livebook. In Jose's keynote, he spent a good deal of time talking about Livebook and showing off some of the new features. 
Typically with a conference, the keynotes are shared publicly pretty early. So hopefully people can go and be able to watch that for themselves. And we will definitely share links to that when that happens. Just a couple highlights. Keynote.process, he was showing that, we've talked about it before in the news, but he was showing it in more usage and in usages that I had not anticipated. And I was really impressed. Not just from like a, this is awesome for educational also just like, man, how did they make that do that? In a live book cell, being able to spawn a new process and then having it send messages between multiple processes and it just diagrammed it all out. And with the messages that are being sent, I was like, wow, that is super cool. And he showed off a lot more about the smart cells. And the smart cells, if you recall, is where it has like a, a visual UI for like filling in inputs and things like that. And then you can toggle it to actually generate the code and toggle to the generated code and have that be like how you learn how to set up a database connection in a live book. So very cool stuff. I really recommend checking out his talk as soon as that's available. He goes into like animating stuff too. So it's not like static content. It's, it's you know, as information is coming in, the, the graphs will continue to draw. That was really cool. Smart sales, like there was also a, a breakout session of just illustrating how smart sales were just awesome. That was the title of the talk, how, how they're amazing. And yeah, it was convincing. They they indeed are, are amazing. <laughs> I, I'm pretty pumped for it, uh, especially for like, there's a Postgres one. So usually when you have a lot of data, you know, you need a connection to a database or, or something like that, a data source. So Postgres is usually my choice. So it's easy to get data into your, into your live book to graph. All right, another big one. Comes to no surprise, but uh, Phoenix 1.7 is released. And there's there's going to be a couple of things in here that we're going to cover. You know, I, I don't think this is the live view conference this year where it was just mind-blowing, right? I think this is going to be one of those, the the TikTok, you know, not the the social the social media platform, but the, the cadence of how things improve over, you know, a year or the next, right? This is going to be a year where Phoenix just gets way better in developer experience and just takes care of all those things that may have bugged people over the years, makes things more consolidated. And so one of the ways that uh, the developer experience is getting improved is there's, there's going to be a new way of writing routes, right? So you're used to at the alias of routes and you do dot, uh, I don't know, OAuth connections show or something like that. You pass in your, your con or your socket and then your action and then your params. But for the most part, it's a total guess. Like the workflow is normal to get it wrong, <laughs> see the error, and then see, you know, what the right one is supposed to be. So it's like the, the process here is just wrong, right? They're going to fix it. They're going to fix it with a P sigil that allows you to type in the route, right? Like slash OAuth connections slash GitHub or whatever it needs to be. And then that P sigil is going to validate it at compile time. So that's like a really nice way to fix that guessing problem of what that route helper function is named and what it needs while also not sacrificing the safety that that stuff provides. So that's pretty cool. Also in Phoenix 1.7, that Tailwind classes are going to be used now in the generators. This is amazing. I saw this. Apparently, Chris and the team worked with the Tailwind team to get the generators a new design, a facelift, but not just making it pretty, but also organizing these things into components. And that's probably the biggest win here. So if you heard Tailwind and you retched a little bit, that's okay. You're still winning out of this because uh, the generators are going to be reorganized into more like, well, components. Because of that simple reorganization of things, because it has Tailwind classes in there, 
it won't really affect you, but it'll be easier to go replace that stuff with whatever you need it to have, right? So if you'd rather use Boma or, you know, anything else, it, it, you got consolidated places to go replace it, which is better than what we had before. So I think that's the big win, but you got to see, you got to see the tailwind design. Like they, they, it looks, it looks good. Maybe one more thing here to, to mention that was released in the 1.7 is that Phoenix Gen Auth. When you do it today, it's using the, the typical, you know, post request response cycle, right? No live view magic there. It's still the, the traditional web request response cycle. Well, now there's a flag, dash dash live. When you're doing Phoenix Gen Auth dash dash live, you will get live view optimized authentication views and workflows. That's a huge win. That's pretty cool. I don't know, Mark, what do you think about this one? And, and once you go over the, the roadmap too, what, was, what is coming up in Phoenix too? But yeah, tell me what you think about Phoenix Gen Auth. Yeah, the Phoenix Gen Auth, like I have a Phoenix app and it is an entirely live view app except for the login stuff because I used the, the Phoenix Gen Auth and it was like these static, you know, dead views. And that's just the way it was. And, you know, it wasn't ideal, but, you know, it's like, I'm not going to try and figure this out. And because the hard part was trying to get the cookie to be set on a session, but because you can't really do that on a regular live view because, you know, it's just, it doesn't work that way. So they had to do some special stuff to make this work. One of the big things I caught in this was how many contributions came and were part of Phoenix 1.7 that were from other people. And Chris spent a good deal of time identifying the different contributions and who these people were. That included things like the mix format for Peaks templates. You know, it was done by outside contributors and it's really cool. I'm really excited to try this dash dash live for the Phoenix Gen Auth because that's like the last part of my app that is like not live view. And I'm just really anxious to get that like moved over. But let's talk a little bit about the roadmap. So Chris closed out his keynote presentation talking about where are we going? What's in the future? And there's a good bit there. Chris talked about this storybook idea, which is like a way of building and showing a whole collection of UI components. We've talked about that in the news, and we're actually looking forward to talking more about this in the future. But really, it's talking about how can we bring some of that into Phoenix proper as an official thing. That sounds really interesting. Another one was improved streams, like the append-prepend story for putting elements on a page, especially in a certain order. And one of the common complaints that he shared about live components is how if like a, a live component wanted to message a parent live component versus the live view that's holding it, then the, the live component had to know about its parentage, which kind of breaks the whole encapsulation goal. And so there's going to be some work around a unified live view and live component messaging for being able to message up that way. So looking forward to that. Also reimagining the form API. And one of the things I'm really looking forward to is like a new component function for layout. Because right now we have the dead view, like the root template layout is not live view. So it becomes harder to control things at that level if you want to have live view stuff. Well, you mentioned the reimagined form API and that that is a huge huge deal, right? Like we make a lot of web a web forms, right? A lot a lot of layouts surrounding the idea of like collecting and showing data. And anytime you got to collect data, you're probably got a form in there. 
And so this is like a critical part of most apps, I think. I've even written a blog post on this like two years ago, I think, about like the insanity that you have to have for a huge complex form and how to make that work with with LiveView. The, the reason why it's it's kind of insane is because, well, the APIs were were designed with dead views, right? Back back before LiveView. The idea of these change sets were that they were supposed to be stateless. But now with these stateful connections, we kind of need another better API. And I think some folks have been asking about this, you know, for a while now. And, and I'm sure that there's going to be some partnership with like the Acto team too. But that's going to be a big deal. I'm pretty excited about that. But yeah, the, the, the function component, you know, template files, which I think, this, so this is a separate thing. But right now, if you have components, they kind of all live in your like EX files. And so there's some, there's some more thought given to how to separate that into like template files, like the, you know, the dot heeks instead of like being inside of your EX file with the, with the H sigil. And why that matters is, or one of the first benefactors of that is going to be the how layouts are defined, right? Because layouts kind of have to go that that traditional phoenix.view route, and then you got your HEEX file, right? From then on, you probably don't do that anymore. You don't, you don't mess with like phoenix views anymore in your live views. The function component template files is, I think, going to kind of remove this layer of, of, of things that you have to, to deal with, which is that phoenix.view stuff. Uh, so that'll be big. The next one was a really big surprise. It was Brian Cartarella during his Dockyard keynote presentation. He introduced a project that they've been working on for some time called Phoenix Live View Native. And so this was his big announcement of that. And really, we're going to have to talk about this a lot more in the future because I think this is a really big deal. What it comes down to is this is not a web view. And when we talk about native, we're talking about mobile, right? Mobile interfaces, but not just mobile. It's also desktop, but it's native components. Like you have React Native, where React will display native inputs and buttons and things like that. And native meaning the controls that are actually native to the Android platform or the iOS platform. So this actually uses Heeks templates to render a markup that looks very XML-like, but it gets turned into, in the client, into a like Swift UI. And it's actually building it out there. I, I, I don't know. I can't get over the big change that this represents. And you probably, if you're following anything on social media about what happened at the conference, this is definitely something you've heard about. Yeah, th- this is going to be big. Okay, you said Heeks. And I, I'm not sure that's that would be right because Heeks is HTML. This might be Seeks for Swift EEX. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. They didn't talk about that. So that's that's total uh, total guessing. But yeah, like we're we're used to like live view on the web where, you know, there's a bit of JavaScript and and HTML is kind of piped over the WebSocket, right? And, and the client takes care of patching that. And this is the same thing. But it's just going down to a mobile client or a, a native client, right? And in, in the in the demo, they were talking about iOS, so that's what we're going to be talking about here. In the demo, they had Swift UI components being rendered and patched on the iPhone. That was amazing. And on top of that, I think I saw a screenshot of somebody running the same app on their Mac, right? So like, there is that portability as well. Like, this gives you that same level of ease that like I've enjoyed on the website, right? And but native development has still felt like that other black box of things that I just can't reach with my knowledge set. But this is going to open it up. Like th- this enables someone like me to go in there and do native development. I assume they're targeting mobile first, but 
They definitely announced that they're going to be targeting iOS first because that's just what what they have. But they have like half of it written for Android now and that they're looking forward to Windows via WinUI 3 code. And maybe he's dreaming. (laughs) We'll see. But he also mentioned a C-sharp client for Unity. Like for games? For 3D? Like what? That That's... What? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's all of it about Live View Native, but that was just very impressive. I think one of the things that's worth talking about is Brian shared the motivations for why they did this. And it really came down to React. And like you have React Web components, React Native components. And now there's another thing that I didn't know about called a React server. It's this idea that you can have a React developer who could do the entire full stack system. And the whole idea is full stack, right? He was making the point that for Elixir, it's really important that we be able to service the full stack. And this allows, you know, Elixir on the back end, you can have regular Elixir rendered server pages or live view pages. And now you can have mobile native. And then, you know, if you couple this with what we've been talking about, where people were like Dominic Letts and putting an Elixir, the server actually running on an iOS device, serving up that page of that that data that defines the Swift UI. Now it's a full mobile app. Yeah, that was that was impressive. We said it already. I want to repeat it. This is not a web view. You know, this is not a like a, a little browser that's high, that's pretending to be a native app. No, this is like legit, like you know, vertical stack iOS button kind of kind of stuff, right? me describing this just should show you how how awful I am as a mobile developer. I just don't, I don't even know what I'm talking about. But this this opens it up so that awful people like me can do mobile development. That that's just crazy. Anyway, that's awesome. But that wasn't the only thing that Dockyard announced. They also announced that Lumen was renamed Lumen, by the way, is the WebAssembly Beam implementation that can run in a browser. So we we've known about it for a couple of years, but Lumen was renamed to Firefly. The reason is like yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's because that Lumen is just everywhere already. Like the name Lumen, the brand Lumen was just kind of, it's kind of everywhere. It's a cryptocurrency, I think, right? Like like there's there's all these other products as well. Like there's just searching for Lumen is just, it, it's an overloaded term at this point. So that was an, an announcement, right? That it was renamed. But the important part of that isn't the name. It was that the project is still going, right? Just be aware of the name change, but that it's the the project has been picked back up. It's still getting a lot of good activity. Paul is still on it. Ella is still on it. Like they're still working towards the dream of having an alternative Beam implementation that is portable through WebAssembly. And next up, we had a presentation by a member of the Podium team. So Podium being an Elixir company, and they've been sponsors in the past of Elixir conferences as well. Well, they introduced and released an OWASP security training live book for Elixir developers. This was something that they developed in-house to help educate and train Elixir developers on proper web security. What is so impressive about this is it looks to be a large tool that companies can fork and customize to what's appropriate for them. So if you're using a particular like GraphQL backend and you want people to be using a certain function that's appropriate to your backend, that can be part of that training. And so I was just really impressed that they spent all the time building this and making it public. And so I know we're going to have to talk more about this and, and go into this deeper in the future. 
Yeah, one aspect of that is that they also have some tools. They, 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 he said it was rough, but it's probably not as rough as he, as he says it is. But it's the live book can be graded in an automated fashion. So he described like a CI pipeline where, you know, the, the merge request with the answers, you know, in the live book that they're submitting is like checked against an answer key and then graded. <laughs> so I've been through security training and it's like super dry, right? It's like roll your eyes, kind of like, oh my God, I got to go through this again. But if somebody gave me a live book as a developer with security, like there's nine modules in here, like it's comprehensive or maybe even more. Okay, th this will actually be okay. You know, this this is something that I can I can digest. I can't talk about the conference without mentioning my own my own talk. <laughs> so, I g I gave a talk on a uh, Ecto in production, the migrations edition, and that that went great. And so here's here's the announcement out of that talk, which is that Ecto has fantastic documentation, but that I am creating another resource called Ecto in production that provides a book's worth of material and recipes to do, you know, Ecto-y things. So, for example, if you're looking for, like, how to do full-text search in Postgres, you can Google that. You can find some good things, and, and you should. But ectoinproduction.com is going to be released, and it will be a, kind of an education. I don't know. Think of it as Hexdocs Plus, maybe. But it's got like fantastic search capabilities in there to find, you know, the bit of informa information that you're looking for. And the idea of when it's when it's launched, I've got about a third of it done, is that when you get to that article that you're looking for, like let's say it's full text search, that article will be a live book. And so you can download that, put that into your, your live book environment, hook it up with your Postgres, right, with that smart cell that we mentioned earlier, and then run through the recipes and the article yourself, right? The first keynote was Jose talking about live book, right? We on the podcast, we know about LiveBook. We, we talk about it every week. But like the impact is huge. Like we're talking about OWASP, right? They have a LiveBook that educates folks on security practices. Like I'm going to try to get a LiveBook program up for Ecto in production. You know, there was another talk from Brooklyn Myers about Dockyard Academy that's going to be using LiveBook to educate. Like this is a tool that's going to have a huge impact on the community. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So again, about Ecto in production, go to ectoinproduction.com. All it is is a sign up form right now to let me contact you in the future to let you know when it's launched. And then from there, you can decide what to do from there. Next up, Owen Bickford from SmartLogic released a live component to support WebAuthN authentication for your LiveView app. The whole idea of WebAuthN is a new API built into modern browsers. It's the kind of thing that allows you to do more platform authentication. Like if you have finger touch sensor on your laptop, you can use that to help authenticate. And the whole idea was being able to do this where it doesn't even need to ask for a password, where you can say, I want to create a new account and use my fingerprint and my username to set up my authentication. That's really cool. That can be one of those transformative things for the web in general. And he was showing how we can do that in our LiveView apps. He also showed how it can work with YubiKeys, which is the, a USB device that like a hardware dongle that you have to have in order to make the unlock. So like, you can you can really talk about the way it can be secure. So you're not worrying about, am I using a password that was part of a breach? Is this something that uh, I need to be concerned about? We'll have links in the show notes too, where you can see a demo of it online and play with it and a link to also, you know, we have links to all this stuff that we've been talking about. You'll have to check it out. All right. Also, we have uh, another another breakout session was by Kip Cole. I know him by CLDR fame. And if you know what CLDR is, that means you've gotten into boring things like I have and like Kip's have. Oh, I forget what it stands for, but it's it's the big database of all the ISO things like that defines calendars, that defines what time is, that defines what time zones are. 
how to format money, how to format dates, like how to print that on the screen, right? Like in the US, we use the comma, you know, to separate our three digits and numbers, right? But in the rest of the world, they use, you know, decimal points, right? Like it's it's all the rules on how to do that. So that's the world that Kip has, you know, come from, right? Kip's a wonderful guy, right? You're going into this, this talk thinking like, oh, we're going to talk about dates and times. Like, I'm about to snooze, right? But no, Kip was fantastic. Like people were saying this was their, their favorite talk. And he introduced a library called Tempo. So when I'm working with dates and times, my mind puts it on a specific point in the, in the timeline, right? From the big bang to the big crunch, this is an example that Kip gave, you're thinking of one time, that's it. But Tempo is a library about representing time simply through a sigil that represents an interval versus a point in time. This is powerful because you can express time in a pretty well understood format. Here's the power of it. You do that through the sigil, but then you can enum.map on that sigil and tell it to like give me the next like two months or something or give me all the days of the month. And it just does it. (laughs) It just does it like super easy. And it does it by displaying the simplest way possible of that interval. The library is called Tempo, and it's by Kip Cole. And you know that it's going to be good because this guy has done, you know, date and time for quite a while. He's contributed a lot to the Elixir world for all things dates and times. So this is going to be a good contribution. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And then on top of that, like, Kip's just an amazing guy. So it was really enjoyable to look at. Yeah, what I thought was interesting about something Kip said was when you talk about being able to express times as a sequence of intervals, then you can start to do set theory on them. And so that's when you get into this idea of having calendars of multiple people, and then you're wanting to do intersections to find availability. And you can do that when you express times this way. So really interesting. Uh, I'll have to play with that. But next up, this is just not Elixir specific. This is just something that I saw and thought, you know, we we talk about Tailwind UI and we we see how Phoenix is talking about using Tailwind CSS for generated templates. If you look at Tailwind UI, a lot of the examples use hero icons. And so hero icons has version 2.0, which was released. It is a free open source SVG icons and little simple graphics. So they've added 260 icons. Also, they added a thinner 1.5 pixel stroke and a new 24 pixel solid set. So it's just, it's nice if you're wanting to have, uh, like, I just want to have some pretty icons in my little side project that I'm trying to do, and it gets a little better there. Yeah, and I think that that rounds out all of our conference-related news, but that doesn't mean that news didn't happen outside of the conference. So we're going to go through some of those things, too. The first thing is hero icons, right? That happened outside the uh, the conference. So that's really cool. But also, Louis Pilfold showed a screenshot of Gleam compiling Elixir's plug. So at first, I looked at this and I was like, uh, so what? You know, like, but then I realized that what I've seen before is a is a mix project compiling Gleam code through one of those uh, mix tasks, right? But this was a Gleam project compiling Elixir stuff. So that just blew my mind a little bit. I think this is going to be good, right? Because this means that if you want to write Gleam, it doesn't have to be, you know, so separated from the rest of it, right? This this stuff can start to work together because, again, Gleam and Elixir both work on OCP and Erlang, right? So this is just crossing that boundary. So I'm curious to see how this this evolves. But uh, we got a link to the uh, Twitter, and I think he even said it was merged by now. So... So that should be working. So if you're into Gleam and you still want some Elixir for some, I don't know, some dependencies or something like that, or for the other side of your team that wants to continue writing Elixir, this looks like a good way to continue working together, which is just 
that's a dream. And next up, this is another piece of news that's just general tech because it applies to a lot of us who are deploying our apps. So it was Heroku's next chapter blog post. It was dated August 25th. Is written by the general manager and Salesforce EVP. David, you were talking about it and, and made me realize how long ago the Salesforce purchase of Heroku was. Yeah, I, I, in my mind, it was like, it was recent. It was like five years ago. But then I looked it up and no, no, that was 12 years ago. Like I was a wee, a wee little boy back then, you know, like <laughs> it was 12 years ago that Salesforce bought Heroku. And, you know, I, I'm not going to blame Salesforce for this, but, you know, it's 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 uh, it's easy to correlate here, right? You, you think big corporations, Salesforce has got to make some money somehow, so they're going to take up Heroku, a good, a good service and platform that has gained a lot of goodwill with the developers because of their free tier. And their free tier being, you know, an easy way for developers. And back then I was, an, I was a, a Rails developer, right? So they, they catered a lot to the Rails community there. But it was an easy way to get a free, you know, dyno, that's what they called them, a free dyno and a free database even, I think, to get your typically side projects, but it could probably even serve some pro- small production apps. Yeah, and they just announced that they will be ending their free tier. And I know a lot of Elixir apps and projects and companies have been hosted on Heroku, even though clustering was not an option. But people were still able to get a lot of mileage out of it because their Elixir app could handle a lot of requests just with a single dyno because, you know, Elixir's awesome. And Phoenix does great with all of the, you know, multi-process handling of requests. So we have a link to that in the show notes if you haven't already heard about it. One point of interest that they mentioned is that it is a focus on mission-critical things, and that means discontinuing the free product plans and deleting inactive accounts. So just a heads up, if you have been on Heroku, I know a lot of other people have been considering alternatives. End of an era. That's okay, though. All right, also up, hey, the IEEE uh, Top Programming Languages of 2022 ninth year of ranking the top programming languages right we, we've talked about this a couple of times like through other you know other reports and uh, but this is the first time i think we talked about the ieee one so they combine multiple metrics from different sources to estimate like the relative popularity of different languages and wouldn't you know it elixir made it to the list but spoiler alert we already knew that like elixir probably isn't the most popular language Popular in terms of numbers, at least, not really. But uh, what did you find uh, interesting about this, Mark? What I thought was interesting, and and the reason that it's worth mentioning here, is sometimes you just want to know how other people view you and how your product or your language is perceived. I thought it was interesting is how they described and explained Elixir. So they have all the languages in there, and you can hover over them. They have a little pop-up tooltip thing to explain what these languages are in case you haven't heard of one. And it says, Elixir is... An extension of the Erlang programming language, Elixir is intended for large-scale software such as high-traffic websites or handling volumes of data. So I thought that was interesting that that's how they perceive what Elixir is and like what it's used for. It's not quite how I would describe it, you know, like because we're talking about running Elixir on the mobile devices and Livebook and Nerves devices. It is like a whole lot more than that. But I think it's interesting just to know how other people perceive our language. But just that people are also talking about it. Just seeing that on that list might be how someone else starts to hear about Elixir. Yeah, the, the word that caught me was extension. We're an extension of Erlang. Like, like you, you install Erlang and then you go to the extensions directory and you drop Elixir in or something like that. It's a plug-in. <laughs> yeah, like a plug-in. 
All right, let's let's talk about some uh, machine learning stuff. Sean Moriarty actually at, at ElixirConf talked about how Axon is built upon NX and what it can do. And he was explaining when it's a good idea to check out Elixir and Axon. And specifically, you know, he talked about neural networks. And one of the questions that was asked was, how can I use Axon with non-neural networks? And Sean hinted that, hey, maybe there's some work that's being done in that area, right? I mean, hey, that could be pretty cool. And that led right into the thing that I saw that Jose tweeted about. And he shared that they are porting non-neural algorithms to Elixir and NX, which runs both on the CPU and the GPU. So in his tweet, which we have linked in the show notes, he shared some time and performance comparisons. So this was about some machine learning training. And he did a comparison to Python. This particular training set with Python took eight seconds. And if you do that with Scholar and Elixir with the CPU, it was 4.5 seconds. And if you do that with the JIT and the GPU uh, with Elixir and Scholar, then it was two seconds on the first run and 0.15 seconds on subsequent times. That's really cool. So I, I was just like, wow, okay, they are doing some interesting stuff and we should probably expect some new exciting announcements in the future. I think the big thing to take away there is, and this was really driven home at the conference, it takes a while to shed an image of being too new. And NX has, you know, been a a force to be reckoned with, you know, for a while, but it's still been new. And Chris Granger and Sean Moriarty, like, they pressed this point hard during the Elixir Conf that it is ready. Elixir, Axon, Explorer, NX, all these libraries and, and like this ecosystem for machine learning in Elixir is ready, right? So this benchmark that Jose was, was you know, sharing online, like eight seconds compared to four and a half seconds in the worst scenario, right? That's almost twice as fast. But then it gets even better from there to, to the best case scenario of 0.15 seconds. That's like a database call, you know, like that's... I mean, I hope that's a database call. If you got longer ones, then maybe you should introduce machine learning to your database. Yeah, so Chris Granger gave a keynote about how they were using uh, Elixir. And so he's a CTO of a founder of his own company that uses machine learning for patent paper analysis to, to find out if your idea is already patented somewhere. But the big point that he was making was that Elixir is ready. You know, he made this over and over and over again, this point. It was convincing. He did a good job convincing me. But he talked about how their Elixir version was saving them thousands of dollars of work, right? We're not even talking about just time anymore. We're talking about money, you know? And that's how that's how you get to business people's hearts. The days of compute time, letting large weekly jobs be done just much faster, right? If you, if you had to do this weekly before, now maybe you can do it daily. And on top of that, he was using Broadway for some of that as well. This is leveraging the rest of the ecosystem of Elixir. NX, you know, just big data processing and using NX, maybe the GPU, maybe distributing some of that through Broadway. This is a recipe for success. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So we'll see, we'll see how, how things evolve and what other announcements that we'll, we'll have soon about the ecosystem. Well, that's pretty much it. There's no way we could cover it all. There's just, there's, you know, multiple tracks, simultaneous, multiple days. I know we'll be wanting to invite people on where we were really intrigued by what they were talking about. And we'd love to go deeper on that. So we'll be doing that in the future. And if you were at the conference or maybe you were watching it remotely and there was something you're like, wow, I'm totally, totally blown away with this. I want to learn more. Like reach out to us, go to the show notes and the contact and let us know what you want to hear about so we can make sure to invite them on and go deeper on those things too. 
because there were also multiple projects that were announced, like Ash Framework announced that their version two was released. And there were multiple people saying, this is coming, or this is coming this next week, or this is out now, and lots of cool stuff. We couldn't attend all the talks. There were like, you know, there's multi-track, there's stuff going on in other rooms. I couldn't be in there, or I got caught in a really fascinating hallway discussion and missed a talk. So we'll be wanting to watch some of the ones that we missed as well. But if you missed ElixirConf, just want to put on your radar that a new Lambda Days conference was announced. This will be next June the 5th and 6th, 2023. They are announcing that's the 10th edition of the Lambda Days, and it will take place in the summer in person in Krakow, Poland. The Lambda Days is not Elixir-specific. There's often an Elixir presence there, but it is a functional programming conference. Well, David, I had a blast because we do the podcast every week, but we're always doing it from our homes and we're remote. And this is an opportunity to actually get together physically. And, you know, sometimes I'm, I forget how beneficial that can be just to get together, you know, all these people who are passionate and care about Elixir and they care about the community. Yeah, it's been a couple of years since I've been able to come out, right? A, a lot of things happened, right? And, and, and I'm sure all of you can relate. You know, COVID happened, pandemics happened, uh, babies happened for, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of folks, probably me included. Just a lot of stuff has, has happened. And we've gotten ourselves into this you know, this weird place where we might feel isolated or we might feel hesitant to go out into big crowds. And I totally get it. But I have got to tell you that going to ElixirConf physically and maybe whatever your next conference is, going there physically, it's way better. You know, it's it's so good. You have to reconsider. If if there is something that's keeping you home, remote, just just think about it again, right? Don't let the default of just staying back, you know, remote, be the easy decision, the one that you go with, right? Just just give it a serious consideration. There are so many friendly people out here that just want probably to meet you. We all want to meet each other. We had such a good time. It was so good. I had a long conversation with Zach Daniel. Like, wouldn't have ever happened. Wouldn't have happened remotely, you know? Zach being the, the Ash guy, by the way. Like, long, good conversation with him. Long conversation with Owen. Just wouldn't, Owen at SmartLogic, I would, I, wouldn't have happened. You know, that, that hallway track, and not just the hallway track, but just like taking in the vibes of, of you know, the, the folks around you. Everybody was having fun. It's contagious in a good way, in a good way. So like, it's so good. For what it's worth, I'm feeling fine. I didn't get sick. So that's good. <laughs> you know, one of the things I want to stress is it can be cost prohibitive for people to come to the U.S., so it doesn't have to be to a U.S. conference. You can go to a regional conference and get a, a lot of those same benefits of being in person with people. Well, I think we've had a, a blast being here. And if you've noticed something different with the audio, yeah, you know, we're, we're recording on location. We're having to do the best we can. So we're going to sound a little different. So hopefully you're still able to, to get everything out of this that uh, we, we try to share and put in here. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Thank you.